Welcome to Ask the Growbot, where the concept is simple. Get experienced cannabis professionals in the same space with AI-powered ChatGPT, who we call the Growbot, and ask some questions, get some answers, and chop it up. So welcome to another episode of Ask the Growbot. Per usual, I'm Jesse Porter with GrowGlide, the Director of Cultivation and Content Creation, joined by Will Gonzalez, the Director of Marketing and Creative Tech, as well as the Wrangler of the Growbot. Today, we have the luxury of being joined by Casey Rivero from Fluence, a solutions architect, but also really, really knowledgeable lighting expert who's been in the industry for just as long as anybody. Uh, quick story, I met Casey years ago, smoking a joint in San Diego, standing out in front of an energy efficiency conference, where I felt like we hit it off on another level. And ever since then, it's been a joy to work with you, Casey. It's been a joy to collaborate, work on projects, talk high level. Uh, but let me spin it over to you and let you give yourself your own ego stroke and tell us maybe a little bit about a day in the life of you and influence, man. Uh, Jesse, I appreciate it. Uh, I don't know if I could really top uh, that uh, intro you gave for me, but uh, I appreciate that. Um, I was just uh, kind of thinking back on that. And I wonder how many first meetings I had with smoking a joint outside of a conference uh, you know, ending up with a lot of great friendships I have now. So, um, likewise, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure for sure. So, yeah, like Jesse said, I'm a cannabis solutions architect with Fluence, and uh, it's on the business development team. Essentially, you know, one of the things outside of manufacturing fixtures that we really put a lot of energy into is the support. You know, uh, the front end support even before people even consider buying lights, you know, all the way through the purchase and through the cultivation, you know, because the more successful people are, um, you know, off the bat, the more successful they will be, you know, in the future. So uh, one of my roles is to help really kind of ensure that uh, people are on the right path before we even get to conversations about lighting. So I would say, man, you're consultative support and approach to sales is, you know, top by none, right? referencing the photobiology, you know, report and letting people really understand why they're making the decisions they're making, pointing them to case studies that are relevant for them. Now, you and I have been on webinars and panels talking about retrofits and the interaction between HVAC and lighting. And now I hear I'm here in a racking role. So I'm excited to unpack a little bit of that for people too. Yeah. Um, but let's just jump in, start asking the GrowBot some questions. Let's give it a snowball to start with, right? Mm -hmm. Like what are the five most important considerations when you're purchasing an LED fixture for commercial cannabis cultivation? There we go. Get juicy. Get juicy. I wonder if it's going to say anything about diode batching or secondary optics or Ooh. anything crazy like that, man. Maybe that's a 4.0 question. That's a, yeah, that might be a 4.0 question. But yeah. we'll see. I've been impressed thus far. All right, here we go. Me too. Top five. Spectrum, light intensity, energy efficiency, durability, and customization. All right. Spectrum. What do you think, Casey? Uh, so, you know, I would kind of have to agree with most of these from the chatbot. The chatbot, uh, I would give it a, a 95.5 uh, rating on this one. Um you know, Spectrum, although is important, I wouldn't choose it as my number one. Um, it is part of the componentry in the equation, but it kind of really depends on the rest of what you're looking for in a fixture. Um, so obviously, you know, in the old days, we kind of used to think of, let's use blue for veg, let's use red for flower. 
and this is what we got, you know. Um, and and as we are starting to develop more strategies around lighting and understanding of light using newer technologies of lighting, you know, previously before we were using high intensity discharge lighting, which put out a slightly different quality of light than the LEDs are able to now. But nowadays we're able to actually study the effects on, on you know, what spectrum does to the morphology of the plant and also the chemical compositions of that plant. Um, what if number one was quality of light instead of spectrum, right? When I think about yeah. spectrum, I think about you know, R&D playing around with spectrum that I don't fully understand the impact. I know Fluence has done some great studies on basil and cannabis to watch spectrums we can correlate to bioflavonoid production or production of secondary metabolites. But I think about quality of light a lot, right? Like, and, and then obviously number two, light intensity is a big one. But like you said, it's not in a vacuum, right? And I think this one, number two, light intensity, speaks volumes to the conversations we have about racking and lighting interaction, totally. tier spacing, right? PPFD relative to tiers. Do you need 56 inches or 74 inches? And every time I ask someone, what kind of light are you using? What's the wattage and what's your PPFD goal? They go, why do you need to know? And I say, because I want to make sure I'm not selling you six inches of additional material Right. that you don't need that adds up to forty, fifty, seventy thousand dollars on your project. Totally. And I mean, the intricacies of how each of these choices all not only work together, but affect each other is the thing that like a lot of people miss out on when making a, a decision on spectrum, intensity, racking units, irrigation units. It's every choice that you make, there has to be subsequent choices, you know, in each of the other areas, you know, along the way. You know, for instance, you know, this number one and number two, we have spectrum and intensity or quality and intensity, you know, each on their own, we can we can understand so much, right, in the research that we've all done in, in academics and, and in, you know, in-house influence, right? But really, it's the balance of that two that really make, you know, the results happen, you know? How much intensity with what type of spectrum produces that exact result? You know, it's not just spectrum. It's not just blue does this, red does this. It's how much of a blue, you know, does this? How much of a red does this? You know, and what are we trying to look for? You know, and, and one of the things that we're seeing nowadays is, as we've discussed numerous times, is, you know, high intensity lighting, right? It seems that, you know, at first LEDs were designed to save energy. You know, and okay, we're going to save the world. We're going to save energy, LEDs, you know, and this and that. And now we started to say, wait, maybe we could produce a little bit more and increase in our intensity based on that efficiency factor, you know? And so high intensity cultivation is something that, you know, over the past few years, you know, people have really started to study and look into. Now, that being said, the higher the intensity you get, the more those spectral effects really change the dynamics of that plant growth. You know, and so, you know, this next topic, number three, is energy uh, uh, efficiency, right? What some of us refer to as efficacy, right? How much power does it take to produce how much light, right? And we've seen a lot of lighting vendors nowadays create some really efficient lights, you know. Um, but what that, what that, what, when we look into that, you know, it's, it's due to the fact that certain spectrums take a certain amount of energy to create light. 
right? So with red and blue, it takes a less amount of energy to create a higher level of light than, you know, something more in the green spectrum in the, in the center of the PAR range, right? And so a lot of lighting manufacturers will create a highly efficient light or efficacious light by using a higher red content, right? But one thing that we're noticing in a lot of our studies is that at high intensity is a higher red content creates some weird funky morphological things. We've all seen, you know, bleached buds, the bleached top syndrome, you know, that you look out and you see this beautiful canopy and all, all the tops are completely white and look absolutely horrible in a bag, you know? And so these top three things are something that you should be really heavily scrutinizing, you know, when you're looking at, uh, uh, at lighting solutions as together. Well, I think number two, like I, you know how much I love Bruce Bugby, but I'm going to blame Bugby's study here for correlating light intensity to yield. And then everyone just saying, cool, more intensity, more intensity, more intensity, which led to the development of some cool technology. And like you said, this high intensity cultivation, but how do we really measure energy efficiency in the space, right? It has to do with COAs, it has to do with price per pound, grams per square foot, the back end of the sausage making machine, if you will. And I always think about, you know, especially when I was in the HVAC space and now in the racking space, thinking about tier spacing, when you choose this more intense light, are you also going to be able to optimize the dehumidification need, the fertigation needs, the dry back? Do you need more media? Are you going to have a bigger root structure? Do you need to spend more time in veg to take advantage of this higher PPFD environment? And I think the truth is, is that cannabis to me and to you, I know is not an experiment. It's a business that we're trying to run and pay people and supply people with medicine or recreational product. But you almost have to experiment in these high intensity environments to figure out that balance of what's a gram worth and what's a gram cost to produce and right. do you want to produce more mids or do you want to make sure that you never compromise the quality of your production you know for sure no i mean you, you hit it on the head and you know you know dr bugby definitely was correct in in a lot of his data in showing the correlation between you know especially a linear increase in in and flower production, overall flower production, when you increase light intensity. And a lot of our studies showed the same thing. You know, um, there was quite the linear curve or linear, you know, line forward uh, when you, when you, you know, considered both of those things. Now, that being said, obviously, there's definitely a drop off point based on the genetics. You know, the higher we went, the more variability we saw in that linear increase um, in production, right? Now that didn't take into consideration quality, which is one of the things you mentioned, right? So one of the things we've been focused on for so long is that produce more, produce more, produce more, produce more, right? And each market that we're in demands something different from the cannabis industry, right? Some markets are underproduced, some markets are overproduced, right? And so, you know, one of the things that I like to really, you know, always take a step back and look at is to say, okay, where the hell am I producing right now? Am I producing in a market that needs more an efficient style of production, right? And maximizing, but in an efficient way to produce more quality? Or am I in a market that just needs to go yaka and just produce as much as I can possibly produce, right? Because the market needs it. There's only, you know, a few players in the game at this point, you know, and so Producing, 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 producing doesn't always equal sales, sales, sales and revenue, right? 
We always right. have well, what to are you producing balancing for? that. Exactly. How much is it flour, consumer packaged goods, totally. free rolls, like there's lots of different business avenues to be successful. Absolutely. And it's all different depending on, you know, which market you're in and what you're trying to achieve in that market. And number four is interesting to me, right? Durability. I think there's a number of different ways to interpret this, right? As a cultivator historically for 18-ish years, whatever you want to call it at this point in my career, I've seen everything fail, right? I've seen my walls fail. I've seen HVAC fail, fertigation fail, lighting fails. To me, it comes down to a lot of what I love watching you do, which is support the customer. Durability is one thing, but making sure they're getting the most out of the tool, managing the tool appropriately, maintaining the tool appropriately so you can have a longer lifespan, and then supporting the tool in failure because every mechanical device fails ultimately. So durability to me isn't, can I hit it with a hammer seven times or 10 times? (laughs) It's, you know, what does this lifetime of ownership look like with the partner that I've chosen to invest in? Absolutely. That's it. I mean, you know, no matter what, if if a human's creating it, it's going to break at some point, you know. And so there's kind of two things, you know, there's is the product designed for a commercial use? Number one, have they thought of the things that need to be thought about on a commercial scale that might affect, you know, the performance of that that product? Right. So obviously, there's the first consideration. Am I creating it for consumer market? Am I creating it for commercial market? Right. And then at that point, like you said, things are going to break. Things are going to go down. You know, it happens to everyone. It happens to every manufacturer at some point or another. There's there's recalls on this in the auto industry. There's recalls on this in the, you know, the you know medical industry and everything in between. Um so I think that, uh, you know, one of the big keys is to, um, you know, understand who your manufacturer is and how they can support you if and when there is an issue, you know, and that's something that we've seen in, in you know, the product industry and the manufacturing industry and in, in agriculture for a while now is that there's a lot of real cheap, easy products that enter the market, right, but don't have much of a depth of company behind it, you know, and a big problem can tank a company really quickly, right? We've seen it a few times with a few different manufacturers as of recently, you know? And so, you know, that's the one thing there's, there's always going to be issues, but if, you know, there's a company that can stand behind the product and weather the storm with the customer through those issues, you know, that's really what sets a lot of people apart. Got it. And then customizable options, I think, You don't necessarily want to leave me to dictate to fluence or lighting manufacturer, build me a custom light, right? With a custom spectrum, add UV and add far infrared and make it six feet long because I have custom tables. It's maybe not commercially viable, but at least I understand that this leads us to more research and development and something that I always see from fluence. I mean, you've led the charge for years and other people have followed up help people make scientifically backed decisions, do a case study, do some research, prove it out. So when you're balancing this allocation of limited resources to ROI expectations, you know what your expectations are rather than just rolling the dice and hoping for the best on a random idea. 100%. There's things in the cultivation facility that you want customizable, you know, based on, you know, performances and this and that. And then there's things as well as you and I know from running our facilities over the years that, 
you don't want your employees to touch. You want to set it. You want it to run. You want it consistent every single time. And there's certain key components that if you're not consistent with those components, then your production and your expectations on production will never be consistent, you know? And so, like you said, leave the research and the science to the manufacturers to then recommend you this spectrum, this intensity, this, you know, application. Right. And there's tons of options. It's not like we're limited on options anymore. Before it was like, do you want blurple or full spectrum? Now it's a whole myriad of opportunities to take advantage of. Yep, exactly. And that's the one thing that kind of we've put a lot of energy at Fluence into is saying, okay, well, here's the spectrum that we recommend and for this purpose, but here's the data that we've done and here's the analytics that we have and here's what supports that decision, right? Yeah, other people have had other, you know, data and seen other results from this and that, right? But the, the, the data that we have, you know, supports what we offer as far as solutions to people. And I think that's the important part because then we can help people utilize those things, you know? Let's uh, transition to something a little more granular and ask the GrowBot. Um, and Casey, I, I love unpacking these more detailed, nuanced, scientific business decisions with you. This episode is brought to you by One Inch Threaded Nipples. No joke, this isn't about your sexual fantasies. This is about drainage and eliminating bulkhead fittings on your vertical racks that leak and become the source of pathogens in your grow. Stop dripping stagnant water, worrying about clogged downspouts. You can keep your dirty mind. GrowGlide will make sure your drainage is clean. What are, from a lighting perspective, what are the most important things to consider as you transition from vegetative growth to generative growth or flowering, whatever you prefer, Will. Because I think it's going to allow us to unpack a couple of things. Daily Light Integral, which I've seen you give wonderful presentations on, um, but also some conversations I've had with my cultivation partners about VPD matching and not necessarily such a concern about intensity matching, but understanding leaf temp and the impact of the light. Um, but I'm curious, uh, you know, because that's one of the biggest issues a cultivator faces is time to turn a run, right? We're trying to get five, five and a half, six turns a year, depending on genetics. And how do we make sure we don't uh, get any stunting as we transition from veg to flower? Man, 3.5 is way faster than four, Will. Yeah, but the answers suck because <laughs> it, it basically it comes at a discount. Same thing over like spectrum, light intensity, light duration. So the, the question was, I want you to act as, a, as an expert in LED lighting and cannabis cultivation. What are the most important things to consider from vegetative growth to flower when it comes to lighting? And um, maybe we can rephrase the question. Well, let's ask it a follow up question that's a little bit different. Something yeah. about you know, help us understand the importance of daily light integral when it comes to cannabis cultivation. Should we delineate between indoor and greenhouse? I think that's a great that point. Gets, that, gets, that gets deep down the rabbit hole there. All right, so give it to me again. Help us understand the importance of... Casey, throw it at him. Ooh. No, no, no. Go with your, go with your original one. And okay. we can, and we help can us understand the importance of daily light integral when it comes to cannabis cultivation. Okay. Okay. Because I think it helps us unpack okay. a number of different There we go. Right. 
Yeah. Hey, it, it at least says the right word in there. Um, yeah. I used to say interval for so long before I talked to people that knew what they were talking about. You know, it's an saying? interval of integral. <laughs> it's like, yeah, the lights are, it's 18 hours or 12 hours. That's, that's the interval, a, man. I got yeah. it. So it's giving a range of DLI from 20 to 40 per day. Is that, well, let's maybe get the Casey response here. Is, is it's obvious that there are some differences between outdoor greenhouse, supplemental light greenhouse, light depth, indoor. There's a lot to go on there. Specifically, my brain resonates with, okay, we have this high light intensity or controlled light intensity vegetative space that we need to feed into flower. How do we make sure we mitigate against the quote unquote, you know, adjustment period? Because I think, you know, there is an adjustment period, but that plant can continue to keep ramping up versus stalling as we enter that phase. For sure. So, you know, uh, kind of two two different topics in a way, you know, the transition from veg into flower and maximizing that. But on the DLI topic right here, should we kind of, should we, should, should I discuss the DLI topic a little bit more? Yeah. Give you some DLI knowledge. Cool. So um, DLI is essentially an end result or, of something that we are creating right as far as a tool and a tactic and so to me you know in 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 commercial agriculture or previous can to cannabis agriculture which was just called agriculture it was never commercial agriculture it was just agriculture though cannabis came around um but in commercial agriculture they use dli differently depending on the type of crop and depending on the season that they're in around the world right you know traditionally you know, they're in glass houses or greenhouses, you know, which compete with whatever natural season, whatever natural environment is going on. And so utilizing, you know, DLI as a guide, you know, like a North Star for a specific crop was always kind of, you know, um, done in, in that world, you know, of flower and vegetable production. So in the cannabis world, DLI is kind of more, like I said, just a result, right? So a tactic is going to change depending on what side of the world you're in. Um, you know, let's start with greenhouse, right? You're going to utilize DLI differently or that, you know, the calculation of DLI differently in Colombia if you're trying to vegetate a plant than you would in Canada, you know, in a vegetative plant, right? And the same thing with the flower. Number one, you know, two different regions in Colombia, you're equatorial, so you're you know, you're working on a 12 and 12 hour day, no matter what time of the year it is, right? So you have a different tactic as far as DLI, right? Than you would up in Canada, you know, up in Leamington or whatnot, right? Um, and so it's a little bit more dynamic in the greenhouse world, you know? Um, and so this requirement of, you know, it needs X number of DLI, right? The plant is continuing to respond, right? So if you set everything up on this average schedule, that by the end of this month or by the end of this week, I need to average XDLI or by the end of this day, I have to average XDLI. You're not really taking into consideration the dynamicness of, of that plant's growth periods, right? Throughout a day, because each day can be completely different in the natural light level. And so to me, you know, I don't usually base things off of DLI. I base things off of what I want my light intensity to be at for how long. 
right? And then the DLI is just an end result calculation that gets spit out at the end, right? But to me, I say consistently, how much light do I want on my plant for how many hours of the day? I don't want it doing this all day long, but equaling out to 30 or 40 DLI at the end of the day. Because the entire day your plant was doing this in response to what that light was doing, right? So if we follow traditional DLI values, that's what our plant is going to do. Because at the end of the day, as long as you've reached a certain amount of light by the 12 hours a day, you should be good, right? But yet, if you have six out of that 12 hours that was super cloudy and super dark, and then those clouds moved away and you got 2,500 PPFD, right? Your plant's not gonna catch up for that six hours that it didn't get that DLI or didn't get that light level. You know what I'm saying? And so to me, DLI is kind of an interesting conundrum to really like focus on. It's more of a checks and balances in my opinion, you know? Gotcha. So in an indoor, it is, it's just DLI, it's just whatever we create because it's just on for this amount of time with this intensity off for this amount of time with this intensity you know okay i follow you on that and you know speaking to that light intensity i again photobiology guide webinars you guys were some of the first people to really put out a leaf temperature guide and say hey man we should be shooting for 78 to 82 degrees of leaf temperature which i think has driven us to all discuss vapor pressure deficit at a higher level so maybe let's ask it some sort of question of like what's the Let's let's pick a specific example. What's the best, what's the optimal leaf temperature for 1400 PPFD? Because I think that what I've come to find is that I'm always trying to shoot for a homogenized leaf temperature and I'm trying to keep it in this range. But I've also found that you know, altering light intensity gives me more heat to play with and using convective cooling and airflow crop steering and changing the temperature that that leaf sees or that the leaf is also affects transpiration, phenotypic expression, late stage senescence. So it is again, all those things trying to marry together. But like you said, we're thinking about light intensity. I struggle with this quite a bit. All right, I sort of like this first answer. We can unpack it. But when we're thinking about PPFD, how do you measure it, Casey? We've got leaf area index. We've got three and a half foot tall plants. I've got something at the bottom that's below 100 PPFD sink. Should I remove that leaf? I've got something at the top that's 1200. I'd love to get your perspective as a cultivator and someone who's very intimate with this type of scientific measurement. How do I do that? Like, how do I assess my facility and that light and the light spacing uh, with PPFD as a primary tool and leaf temperature being in play? Uh, Jesse, that's a super great question. Um, And it's kind of one that, you know, you ask 10 people, you might get 10 different answers, you know? Um, But from my experience, you know, it really, so there's a few things, right? From the cultivator side, it all depends on your lighting strategy all depends on how you cultivate your crops right if you you know if you top your plants multiple times create more of a floret type structure keep your canopy lower you're going to have a different approach than if you you know grow taller plants don't top it at all or not as much you know um and let your veg time longer 
So crop management really comes into play on, on the lighting strategy, right? You know, and, and as far as, as, as light measurements and consistency, we can only measure on a certain plane at a certain distance, right? And at that space and time, that's what the light level is right there, right? Not necessarily right here or right here or down below, but right at that space and time. So one of the things that we look at is a consistency over a plane right over a space or we call it the canopy, right? So a consistency amount of light spread. And then we look at different layers of that based on what the canopy structure is gonna be. So if I grow a crop that's let's say 36 inches tall, you know, I wanna know what that light level is gonna be when the plant is, you know, 18 inches tall, when it comes out of the veg at 24 inches tall, you know, that way I can understand what that crop's development is gonna be based on the light level, you know, or what the light level is going to be based on that crops, you know, evolution is going to be as well, too, because we can design for, you know, let's say 1400 PPFD at a specific distance. But then what's happening to that crop when it's half the size, you know, and growing up into that distance, understanding that is really helpful in knowing, you know, that strategy and how to actually take care of the plants, too. Totally. I mean, plant cultural control is huge. Like you mentioned, SOPs, predictable SOPs are critical. And I think about like this, these are just two factors that we're talking about. Obviously, it did bring in closely monitored humidity and CO2. Airflow is a big one, right? Like all these things play a role. 75 to 85 degree Fahrenheit is a big range, man. And it's a big difference in how you manage your HVAC system or the efficiency of your dehumidification. Obviously, you run at a warmer temperature, you're going to get a higher level of dehumidification and more uh, ultimately operational efficiency. But how do you achieve that? Right. At what CO2 ppm, at what level of airflow, top down, bottom up? How do you homogenize the majority of that plant that sees a certain range of PPFD, like you yep. mentioned. And totally. It, One of the things I'm kind of stoked about is this first, you know, it kind of, this is the, gives me the heebie-jeebies about the uh, chat GBT is that it, the last sentence in that first paragraph where it's like, however, it's important to remember that optimal conditions can vary depending on specific <laughs> cannabis strains and growth stages. I'm like, yo, who's back there writing this right now? You know, cultivar dependent. So, yeah. so I switched over to I switched over to GPT four. I was so. going to say it seemed like <laughs> yeah. a, a bit of an upgrade. It's not giving us it, spectrum and light intensity anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what uh, though? This sort of kills me a little bit, right? Like, and I probably wouldn't bring this up with a lot of people, but Casey, I, I hear this all the time. I know you've heard it for years too. Cultivar dependent, cultivar dependent, cultivar dependent. There are so many poly hybrids that dominate the space today that there's a pretty solid grouping of like, this is the template you should run with because you've got the genetics mashed up. It's pretty hard to say, hey, this is a land race or this is an exotic or this is genuinely 80% sativa, this is genuinely 80% indica. As a guy who has a farm up north and has been breeding you know, uh, IBL Panama Reds and Colombians for a while, I'll tell you, some of these you can't grow inside, man. Yeah, you don't have 14 sure. weeks or the headspace to be able to get it done. So I think that's where it really comes into play in measuring these things. But I think it's sometimes used as a get out of jail free card to not really dive into the granular data and the science that we do have that can empower cultivators. So 
we still for years have been, I'm a master grower. I have the secret sauce job security. And now that job security has turned into it's cultivar specific. I'm bringing my own cultivars. I know how to run them, get out of my way. <laughs> I come when I think it library. could be an, a much more open scientific conversation to get um, yeah. consistency, like you mentioned. Yeah, totally. And I mean, also, you know, it really depends on how you acquire those genetics and what you have available. You know, if you're if you're getting clones from a clone source and that's what they have, you know, you kind of have to fit them into the program depending on what your 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 market demands too. You know, and all everything always comes back to what the hell does the market demand? You know, if they're not demanding it, don't do it. You know, if 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 the market demands it, then that's where you should focus your energy into, you know? And then there's a lot of things that uh uh that you know come into play once you understand who you're trying to produce for and what you're trying to produce you know and there's definitely markets that like you know the panama reds the acapulco golds the sour diesels the more racier strains you know people love to get up and go hiking in the mountains and this and that and there's markets where you're like yo we've done too much we need to chill on the couch a little bit more i need to not think about my day or all the 50 things that i haven't gotten done yet you know and, and likewise, but the thing is, is that, you know, there's some outliers in each, right? You know, and ultimately at the end of the day, we have a factory and we have to produce and we have to produce consistently. So ultimately it's up to us as the cultivators to choose whether we can allow a difference in our schedule, a difference in our SOPs, because it's worth it to grow that particular variety because I can make X amount of revenue on top of the pain in the ass it gives me. Right. If it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense in this, you know. And so, you know, or should I just scrap it and go with a different genetic, you know, because it doesn't like magnesium or because it doesn't like 1400 PPFD, but everything else does. Or because, you know, it doesn't like 80 degrees, it likes 70 degrees, you know, it's, right. it's, up, it's up to us to say, OK, does this fit in our program and why? Or we got to get rid of it because it doesn't replace it with something that does. Or is this pain in the butt worth it because it gets me high enough price per pound? I think you give us a great segue into something that I wanted to unpack with you a little bit. I know you're a jet setter, man. You're traveling the globe. GrowGlide is obviously serving the international market too, as well with projects in Australia and Portugal and Thailand. And we're all looking for Germany to come online. I think when we talk about genetics and business opportunities and global impact and local sales, I'm curious, uh, you know, Maybe we ask ChatGPT something broad and unpack it a little bit more. This episode is brought to you by Fluence. Fluence is committed to bringing the highest performing crop-specific LED lighting solutions to growers around the world. Fluence's science-led, research-backed approach has helped make Fluence the world's leading LED supplier in the cannabis market, lighting over 6 million square feet of canopy. Learn more about the Fluence Advantage at Fluence.science. Fluence helping the world grow smarter. What are the different considerations you should have when building an international cannabis cultivation facility versus one in the United States? Yeah. Um, I think about it just for like Hertz and connected electrical and things like that uh, in providing a solution. But I know you're there, boots on the ground, building really high quality facilities. I'm curious what perspective you'll bring to helping us unpack it a little bit. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what old 4.0 says on this one. Should have enough data now, you know, international data really come up with some uh, 
some key right. insights. The consideration you should have when you're building an international, international cannabis cultivating as opposed to the building in the U.S. Let's see here. Goes a little bit slower. Thinks it speaks a little bit. So legal and I like, I like where it's starting. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that speaks to geography too. Number well, maybe it'll get to that. But like, if you're going to build a facility in Portugal or Malta, should you really build a three tier indoor facility considering the power structure and the opportunity to take advantage of greenhouse climate yeah. geography? Number three. That's really like that jumps out to me. Take advantage well, of your local point out is on a roll right now. It's, it's yeah, literally my top five so far of what I would be uh, mentioning right now as well too. This is it. Crazy. Oh, dude, local too. Yeah, the labor and workforce is interesting as well. It's it's so important. So many times have I seen facilities that are out. I mean, I was in Colombia um, some years back. I traveled about four hours outside of the city to visit this gigantic greenhouse facility, right? And, you know, yeah, there's some local workforce from the, the, the little community that's near it, but a lot of these employees will, will travel, you know, and work, you know, three or four days and stay in like the employee housing for this or that. And that's a lot. It's expensive, you know? Um, and mm -hmm. usually, usually coupled with low or hard to find workforces is low to hard to find resources power water you know gas other types of energies that are really crucial in in creating a successful company yeah redundancy right lack of redundancy in certain cases i was just talking to kurt the other day in thailand when he's a big soil cultivator right so historically in california you can throw a stone and get biochar and get a bunch of different ingredients that you genuinely want and need. And he found that when he reached out in Thailand, it was all bacterial based, right? Everything was in this tropical forest. Everything was breaking down really quickly. It was hard to get fungal colonies. So it was about, hey, how many, how, where am I going to find rice holes? Where am I going to find things that break down slower? Where am I going to find hard wood versus soft wood? So that geographical consideration is I'm going to have to change the way I make my soil, right? I'm going to have to change my SOPs. I'm going to have to change the way I train my labor force to apply water and defoil and read the plants. Yep. Um, and it was an eye opener for me that it's not just as simple as you have a cookie cutter in the U.S. And I think some MSOs are hoping that it will be that easy. Let's take it over here and stamp it out. I think there's huge opportunities, right? But I do think there are a number of different considerations like we're seeing here. I mean, it was quick to list what eight different things to consider. Yeah. Nine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, these are all super legit for sure. I mean, starting starting with number one, you know, I believe that was the local laws and legislature. You know, obviously the law dictates what's even possible to begin with, you know, and and, you know, as this industry in itself is so global now and it's been around for a little bit, you know, not not long in the grand scheme, but but enough to where we've been able to kind of learn from each other as far as what works, uh, you know, legislation wise and what's not working legislation wise. But still, every single time a country comes online, it's a completely different set of regulations than than the last, you know. And so understanding the intricacies with that, you know, not just that, but how do I create a business in another country? You know, this is even beyond cannabis. It's like, yeah. how do I create a business in Thailand? 
you know, how do I create a business in Germany? You know, how do I do business in, in Germany or Thailand? You know, understanding how to even do business there is, is the first requirement, you know. And then what do they allow you to do? You know, and I love how cultural and social acceptance is number two, because we've seen so many markets that come online that really only come online with the hopes of exporting, right? Because they haven't built a strong local cultural, social and cultural cultural acceptance on it you know because the product it doesn't matter to anyone because then it's just going to get shipped to germany shipped to london or shipped somewhere to be created into a pharmaceutical product right but a market like thailand where it's been such an interesting cultural phenomenon for so long because it you know the cannabis has been in thai culture for so long but yet so illegal for so long you mm -hmm. know that now that it's not illegal anymore People are like, yes, we can smoke. Grandmas are smoking. Uncles are smoking. You know, <laughs> lawyers are Massive smoking. tourist it's economy, it's right? Huge. It's bringing tourism back, which has been something that's been really lacking there since COVID, you know? So, you know, having this cultural and social acceptance is so important in the market to support the market, you know? And I think you're you're absolutely right when you put your finger on the, how do we build a business here, right? The co cultural and social acceptance, there's this, emergence of the market of, hey, do I grow cookies and sell cookies because cookies are hot in America? What about that really unique Thai strain that they used to cultivate that looks like crap in a bag that a tourist like me goes to Koh Samui and that's what I'll spend $100 an eighth on happily because I want a different experience, something I would never get in the US, something that might be grown outdoors that takes 10, 11 weeks, right? Yep. But I think that's part of what we're starting hopefully to see in this global marketplace is it they're all unique markets with unique opportunities to take advantage of something like number three climate geography source material source genetics oh stop importing seeds right like use your local genetics and thailand's a great example they have a history of cultivation and it used to be i was you know stealing genetics from Vietnam because my wife's Vietnamese, I'd be like, hey, give me those mountain region cannabis seeds and I'll pop them over here in my backyard in California and we'll see what happens. Like I want to to see genetics have evolved and fit in their landscape. It is amazing. And I think there's definitely, you know, a room for co-evolution of genetics and the markets because there is a lot, uh, you know, I mean, cannabis has always been traveled from one place to the next to the next to the next you know the the herb historically that landed in thailand came from someone else's pocket from somewhere else you know and it, it's it's been this plant that's been transitioning around the world for a long time you know uh, but like you said you know there's certain genetic the first time uh well not the first time but I, I was in jamaica jamaica some years back it was like 2016 and i was visiting a bunch of farmers um and doing some genetic work and, uh, and I was in a facility that was just riddled with uh, two spot mites, right? Like just riddled with them. And they thought it was heat stress. They were like, oh, these ones got sunburnt, this and that, you know, and I'm like, yeah, I've seen this before. Whip, whipped out my loop, you know, started going over this and we discussed protocols and this and that, but there were clones that had been brought there. Some, some you know, some, some Cali clones that have been brought there years ago, you know, from some project. And now all of a sudden there's two spot mites all over this, this, uh, 
you know, this region. So, you know, seeing things like that too, that, you know, areas aren't used to and pest pressures and pathogen pressures and things like that, you know, that's something that I think the global community is going to need to pay attention to, you know, especially as we start to see a lot of viroids, you know, popping up, um, you know, currently in a lot of the genetics and clones and, and things that we're seeing around too. So, you know, I, I, I love to ask this question of everyone, like we're, we're, talking about years of experience in the industry. You and I have both transitioned our careers from legacy to commercial global cannabis cultivation. Is there, and let's ask ChatGPT this too, uh, maybe the Growbot has a good answer on, what's the most important KPI in international cannabis cultivation? Because obviously it depends on what your business is and your business model. The things we just discussed right here, there's so many different avenues to quote unquote, defining your successful business. I'm curious, right? Because I know you and I think about this. We talk and think about cannabis nonstop all the time. I'm sure you and I have both thought about what would I do if I was going to start an international cannabis business in I mean, maybe Portugal, South Africa. <laughs> I'm trying to get my wife to move to Kosamui. I was like, we had such a good time there last time. Let's just roll back and figure it. it out when we hit the ground. Let's do it. Okay. Yield per square foot or per square meter. Okay. Everyone wants biomass. Biomass I mean, turns into stuff. Like you, know, money. You, would, you wouldn't have anything if you didn't have flowers to start. This is it? This is the only one? Oh, come yeah, on. Yeah, let me... Um... Uh, uh, I'm glad it gives us an example of how to create, uh, how to uh, come up yeah. with yield per square foot. I like yeah, it. Yeah, it's 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 it didn't say pounds per light. I mean, yeah. thank God. Right? Yes, it uh, it shows its work. It likes to show its reasoning and its work. So, so I'll just say, try again. This time, give me a top three list. So it um, so it considers other things. Work harder, 4.0. Come on. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yep. I mean, specifically to Thailand, what do you think, Casey? Do you think it's taking advantage of the cheaper labor force that you can train up and the incoming global tourist space? Do you think it's making consumer packaged goods for exports and preparing for cross country trade as it comes online? Or do you think it's about creating a global brand that you can export back to the US and you know sell as a consumable that way which I love. So I think I think honestly Thailand is kind of different than anywhere we've seen thus far, you know. I think Thailand is focusing internally, you know. They're not focusing on a medical market, they're not focusing on an export market. They're focusing on uh, you know, use it how you need it type market you know and the their the, you know their emphasis on the decriminalization not the legalization you know and so you know yes we will start to see more regulations in thailand there's a big uh, election happening this month that will kind of determine you know um which party and their position on cannabis it will never roll back but you know we'll start to see some tighter regulations in the future but their their focus on bringing uh, more of the culture, more of the community, more tourism uh, is really going to help the industry, in my opinion, and not stifle it. You know, um, I think it's going to be it's so this program is one of the most progressive things that Thailand's government has ever done. 
right? Things happen slowly and this person has to check it and this person has to check it and then there's a new person in office and it goes back a couple steps and slowly, slowly, but cannabis, they're like, get it out, get it open, get it legal, we'll figure it out later, you know? And so I think cannabis or the, you know, the, the industry there in Thailand is really going to show the globe a lot of what can be done when you kind of allow it to happen, you know? Um, and then see where it is and then regulate from there at that point too, you know? So it is kind of an interesting market, especially with the tourism, you know? Um, True. I think it'll be I think good. that the answer is great, great answer. I appreciate your perspective on Thailand, man. You, the first chance I get to go over there for a week with you, man, I'm going to treat you to a nice meal and um, sit on the beach with you with some local weed. But I think that these three answers are great. They're, it's missing one, but I think these are universally applicable to every cannabis cultivation facility across the globe. Everywhere. Quantity, that's yield. Right. Quality, that's number three, right? Yep. Cannabinoid potency, COAs, terpenes, however you want to determine quality. Yep. Cost of production, that's number two, right? Operational efficiency. The only thing that's missing here is consistency. Yep. Can you do it time and time again that allows you to be a brand? That they have people... it in the potency section, so they, they may have tried to okay. cover their basis there, but I think that is a bullet of its own too, for sure. Yeah. yeah, I think it nailed it though. I mean, to me, that's how I judge the success of a facility. Quality, quantity, consistency, and then ultimately you have to have operational efficiency so you don't become the distressed asset your neighbor does. Yeah, someone's going to be that distressed. Hundred percent, and price compression in every market is inevitable. That's just how it goes, right? As the markets evolve, the prices compress. We've seen it in every single market so far, you know. And being able to be aware of that and prepare for that by having, you know, the least amount of costs associated with producing your product, the better, right? While still maintaining quality, consistency, and you know your your direction as a company, you know, that's key, you know. So, because the margins will never be what they are when you first started. It was nice when I was getting 5,000 a pound. Sometimes Lovely people days. just look at me cross-eyed. I'm like, Lovely ah, I used to be the good old days. It's July. You want to wait for September? Sure. I mean, you know, it's July. It's five, five Gs. <laughs> and people think we're being salesy when we're like, no, build it now. Get it built. Like build one room, like invest in it right now, get it up in the air, start growing weed, figure start out who you are as a brand, yeah. figure out how to make money today, not tomorrow. For sure. Because tomorrow is a different game. Absolutely. Um, Never promised. 100%. Yeah. One thing that <laughs> I would love to see on a global scale is the emphasis on THC and CBD and the highest percentages of each that we can possibly get, you know, and that being a lot of driving forces amongst, you know, uh, desires, but also price points, you know, I still see in so many markets, you know, there's the, the 40% THC strain that looks like absolute duff, you know, that like, I probably wouldn't even want to put on my salad type of thing, you know, but it's got 40% and it's on the top shelf, you know, um, Whereas you'll have a fantastic strain, hits you super nicely, super smooth, tastes amazing, smells amazing, but it's 25% and it won't sell, you know? And so I think the THC thing, because it was the first thing that was discovered. And so cannabis just became associated with THC and quality became associated with THC. And now you have all these people chasing numbers. So that's- Well, let's be honest, Casey. You know why this happened, right? It's in the early stages, buyers would buy on a nose. I would sit down, people would open seven bags in front of me. I would roll up joints. I would say, 
22, 28, 24, 36, right? I would just point to bags and give them numbers. And then that skill set doesn't scale. And the template that we had to create as buyers was pay more for this cultivar because I think it's going to sell, pay more for THC. Now it's also pay more for terps. All these other secondary cannabinoids are not on the template that we built in 2005, 2007, 2008 when we started this whole thing. So they're forgotten. They're not factored into the price point. That's frustrating to me because even when I was like, how do I teach Joel how to buy 500 pounds of weed next week? It's like, ah, buy, buy one of these 10 different cultivars. And if it's above this amount of THC, give them $100 more per pound. Right. Right. And you just structure it like that. Anyway, what question do you want to ask the Growbot while we're here, man? I, I know you probably have a million great ideas. I'm curious if there's anything you want to throw it. I was thinking about this earlier and I kept deleting all of my questions because I, I was like, no, let's do this. Let's do that. Um, <laughs> no I mean, rules, man. We don't believe in rules. Right here. It's something that kind of we've touched on in this. And, and I like to always bring people back and myself back, you know, when I'm making any kind of decision. It's really what considerations do business owners need to make when they, de when they decide to cultivate in a certain market? So it's kind of like, a lot of the questions that we've asked wrapped into like a, you know, a little like, okay, what are the considerations, you know, wrapped into a little package. You wanted to list like 10 or something, Will? You think that's the best way to get the Growbot to articulate? Yeah, let's just do top 10 or let's... Uh... And I mean, honestly, it kind of gave us this when we, when it, in, in you know when it, in the um, last one when we talked about international markets because really what applies yeah. to international markets because i mean give it we are the united states but when has those it's like coffee talk you know no united yeah. all states you know so um <laughs> talk. amongst yourself so it's kind of like <laughs> yeah. 50 to different countries in a way you know yeah it's similar it already started in a similar fashion with the legal and regulatory Market, market demand, demand. Market competition. Demand. That's yeah. that huge. That's huge. Climate again. See what it comes up with here. Similar to the international question okay. so far. The labor and workforce thing. I mean, the more I think about that, the the more I. You don't need a talented cannabis experienced labor and workforce you need appropriate vetting and hiring and then training programs internally right it's you need available person workforce. available workforce that's really the way to think about it you're right yeah you just need a, an available work workforce yeah i mean it did add it was very similar to the international question but it did add market demand and competition to this set of responses which is a huge topic nowadays yeah. as we're starting to see a lot of compression and expansion in certain markets you know uh, you got to understand the market that you're producing for and you got to understand who else is, you know, involved in that and what their capabilities are, you know, um, everyone's like, Oh, I want to do the biggest, the best, but right. But there's only so much room in every market. There's only so much room. And eventually, you know, the more that's there, the more it devalues what you're all trying to do. And I think this one speaks to exactly how you justify financial expenditures, right? What makes you stand out in the market? It used to just be better packaging, right? And then everyone got hep to that game. So understanding the competition, understanding, you know, the, the local impact that you're going to make. And 
understanding the cost of production, quality, quantity, consistency, those things allows you to invest in certain things like a fluent sliding partnership, a grow glide racking partnership, appropriate fertigation partnership and nutrient partnership that allow you to not just tell a narrative, have but have the appropriate SOPs to train the available label force to take advantage of that market opportunity. Yep, absolutely. No, it's so super true. I have uh, one last one that I just thought of, and this one will be a fun, funny one. Uh, what is better, single level or multi level cultivation? Okay, that's a good one. We'll see what oh, it man. says. This is an endless debate. Like, honestly, we're running a campaign right now to help people understand the decision, right? Obviously, we sell vertical racks and we think that room utilization is a, is a very important factor, but we also understand that there's phasing, that there's benefits to single tier, that there's labor reductions, that there's load in benefits. To me, there's a lot to unpack here. Totally. I could play the heady science card and say, uh, room utilization, fixed costs, absorption, operational efficiency is built on three tiers. That's what you should do. But as a cultivator, I know that it's not that simple and yep. you need to build a facility that makes you money. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you smash as much canopy as possible into this space. Totally. I completely agree. I think it's the same answer as, as when people ask, what's better, a greenhouse or indoor? You're like, it depends on where, what, how, when, and why. You know, everything is dependent on what exactly all these things, you know, are trying to do in each of these scenarios. Um, yeah, I think it's com confirming your assumptions here, Jesse. Yeah, totally. No, I like it. Old 4.0 is coming through. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad I switched it over. It was uh, 3.5 is not taking my job, but 4.0 might. might, might <laughs> it's coming for us. Old T1000 here on our, <laughs> on our tail, for sure. But Casey, yeah, thank fun. you, man. Uh, it's another episode of Ask the Growbot in the books, right? We asked it some good questions on light intensity, LED decision-making, PPFD, uncovered DLI. We even talked about some personal choices, international cannabis cultivation. Went down a few rabbit holes along the way, man. Um, I knew that our biggest problem bringing you on would be to limit this to an hour. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I always enjoy <laughs> talking with you, man. There's always... So many things I think we learned from each other and appreciate you giving us some time and jumping on the chat, man. Likewise, Jesse and Will. And any chance I get to see one of your amazing bow ties, I, I jump for it. So <laughs> I'm all in for it. <laughs> yeah, Thanks, I, know, I, I really you. appreciate everything you guys do. And this was super fun. It's a, it's a great way to have a discussion, learn some stuff and and uh, scare ourselves with the, uh, the uh, abilities that 4.0 has. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for being on, Casey. It was really uh, great to meet you, and thanks for the discussion. It was awesome. Likewise. Ciao, guys. <laughs>